following message was recorded at Antioch Presbyterian Church, an historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com. We're now on our third and final why of suffering. Not taking up suffering itself yet, but why is there suffering? And we're on part three. The book of Job will start today. God's answer to Job's why and Job's reaction to it. Now, Job is an extremely fascinating and utterly absorbing book. It's a part of God's Old Testament wisdom literature, one of the earliest books written of the Bible, exceedingly high drama, beautifully and wonderfully written as only God the Holy Spirit could do. It's an important book for our class because the whys of human suffering, Job is constantly asking, why am I suffering in the light of a good, all-powerful, caring, merciful, sovereign, loving God? Okay, it's all the more captivating because Job himself, from a biblical viewpoint, was a very, very good man. Even God himself said twice about Job, there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Okay? An extremely interesting book because we are privy to what's going on behind the scenes in the heavenly councils as Job, by and with God's express permission, comes to suffer more than any other major personage in the Bible save the Lord Jesus. An extremely important book for us to consider. I think this is probably one of our most important lessons. And of course, on pain and suffering, it shows the thoughts, the feelings, the misapprehensions, and the spiritual despair to which even a blameless and upright man and one who feared God and shunned evil can descend into in a period of prolonged and intense suffering. Okay. Now, this will be a great help to us individually, should we be called to go through that, or to help counsel people who are going through it. Throughout his whole period of his suffering, which was a long period, Job maintains his integrity, which means he insists that he has done nothing to deserve such suffering. He repeated, repeatedly longs and pleads for an audience with God to show him the mistake and injustice of his being afflicted so severely. Well, in chapter 38, Job, at long last, finally gets that meeting with God that he so intensely longed for. And both God's answer to Job's why and Job's response to it are simply magnificent. Okay? God's discourse with Job's and Job's consequent replies to God in 38 to 42 chapters are truly fascinating and intriguing. What Job and ourselves can learn 
from this about God, about ourselves, about the proper perspective and viewpoints to maintain will be of great help to us if we ever have to go through pain and suffering ourselves or counsel others. Now here's how I'm going to proceed through this book. I'm first, I know we're all familiar, but I want to do it anyway. I'm going to introduce the principal characters in the book of Job. I'm going to give an overview of the events of Job, and I'm going to conclude next week with what we can take away from Job. Okay, the principles in the book of Job are first, God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Then there's Job. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Now, by and with God's express permission, Job is going to be struck with very many severe and terrible afflictions. Another character is Satan, the evil one, who, when God presented Job before him, and you want to note that, God was the one that presented Job before Satan, twice claimed that Job only loved God because of the abundant blessings God had given him and that he would curse him to his face if they were taken away. Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, three friends, and these are good, good friends, whatever their mistaken theology is, Three friends who we are told made an appointment together to come and mourn with Job and to comfort with him. And when they saw Job, they were incredibly devastated at his appearance, so much so that we are told they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his grief was very great. I don't know how many people who come to my hospital bed and sit by me for seven days and nights, so that's why I say these were good friends. Uh, and after mourning with Job silently for seven days, they enter into three cycles of discourses in which they repeatedly urge Job to repent of the great sin that he must have committed to bring all of this upon himself. Job's going to hold fast to his blamelessness, his integrity, claim that he has done nothing to deserve this. Lastly, there's Elihu. We heard about him last week. A young man who bides his time and comes in at chapter 32 and gives a series of monologues stretching to the end of chapter 37. He does not make the same accusations as Job's three friends make. And God does not later charge him with error as he did Job's three friends. Brief overview of the events of Job. Chapter 1 opens in a heavenly assembly and God asked Satan. Satan didn't ask God. God asked Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, Satan replies. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about, about around him? 
around his household and around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely <coughs> curse you to your face. God replies to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. As a result, in one day, Job, who's called the greatest of all the people of the east, loses seven sons and three daughters and suffers the loss of all of his livestock and all of his property. Okay? Yet, what do we read concerning Job? Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell down on the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're told in the next verse, In all of this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Okay? Chapter 2, God again introduces Job to Satan, before Satan, rather, talks of his steadfastness, and again says, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And he adds in the second part of verse 3, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Satan again challenges God. Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and surely he will curse you to your face. Again, with God's permission, Satan struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Again, the events of both these heavenly scenes are totally unknown to Job, who, after showing great steadfastness at the beginning of his afflictions, now becomes totally bewildered at all that's happened to him. He starts a downward spiral. He goes into a whirlpool of pain and suffering, depression, and despair wondering why God has become his enemy and treated him so unjustly. He repeatedly pleads for an audience with God so that he might show him the unjustness of his actions towards him. Again, it's important to keep in mind it was God who twice brought Job to Satan's attention, not the other way around. Once more, it's important to remember that neither Job nor any of his friends, nor his wife, or anyone else knows anything about what's going on in the background. And so, in response to Satan's challenge, God has allowed Job to, Satan to severely afflict Job over a prolonged period of time. Now, whether Job is going to remain faithful to God or curse him to his face, as Satan challenged, it's taken from him during an intense and prolonged suffering. It's a real-life drama that flows through. There's not a door to shut there, is there? 
that flows through the most incredible book. All right, what about those around Job? Did any of them try in a correct manner to help alleviate his sufferings? Well, his wife criticized him. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? And urged him, curse God and die. His three friends, as we mentioned above, in keeping with the general belief of his time, urged Job to repent of his great sin, which he had bought this suffering on himself. Now, this same thing was believed by Jesus' disciples. Okay, we're told in John chapter 9, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And it's still belief held today. Okay, same, same exact belief. Now, although so around Job there were strangers and unworthy men, we're told, who in the past would not have been allowed to even keep Job's dogs. These shared in Job's ridicule and humiliation, some were told even spitting on him. The enemies, of course, piled on him mercifully. Now, I want to remember at this point, remind ourselves there are actually two kinds of suffering. There's physical suffering, and there is intellectual suffering. Intellectual suffering is often referred to in the Bible as having a broken spirit. Proverbs 17, a merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Proverbs 18, the spirit of man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? Job cries out in chapter 17, verse 1, my spirit is broken. Okay, as a result of Job's great afflictions, unknown nature them, utterly broken both physically and spiritually. Probably suffered more than any other person in the Bible, save our Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the full wrath of God and an eternity in hell in our place. Chapters 3 through 31, we see the three cycles of discourses between Job and his three friends. Discourses which Job repeatedly describes the depth of his utter despair his bewilderment that God has become his enemy. He continues to plead for an audience with God so that he can vindicate himself and his innocence before him and show him that he had done nothing wrong to deserve the terrible sufferings that God had in his opinion so unjustly heaped upon him. Got chapters 32 through 37, the monologues of Elihu, who we mentioned earlier, does not make the same mistake as Job's three friends and who was not accused <coughs> by God of wrongdoing as were Job's three friends. Now, of course, on pain and suffering, should very carefully observe and reflect on the spiritual depths to which even a man who's described as a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and shunned evil, can descend in a period of intense and prolonged suffering so that we might ourselves be forewarned and know what to expect or help others. Now what I want to do, I want to take a very close look 
at all of the thoughts and misapprehensions of Job. Because these are what can enter into the mind of even a very good and blameless person such as Job during a period of prolonged suffering and pain. You need to know that this is possible, even for the most best man on earth at that time. Note again, Job did very well in the first part of his afflictions. But after being worn down over an extended period of time, he succumbs to despair, depression, falls victim to many misapprehensions and errors and thoughts concerning God. Now, through all of this, Job never loses his own personal integrity. He never loses his ultimate trust in God. He most certainly never curses God to his face as Satan had twice claimed he would. Most interesting of all in our look at Job's plight is Job's reaction upon finally getting his audience with God. He's been pleading for it all along. And what happens there and the conclusions he comes to because of it. Now, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I got five pages here of Job I'm going to read to you. In-depth look, I want you to see the inmost thoughts and misapprehensions, I've arranged them chronologically, throughout his long period of suffering. I want you to see the depths of Job's utter anguish, distress, bitterness, misery, hopelessness, and despair. A blameless man who seeks always to do nothing but God's will. Chapter 3, Job longs for death and curses the day of his birth. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Who longs for death but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Job despairs at how God has stricken him and speaks of his terror of him. The errors of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. You see, early on here in chapters, early chapters, how far he's declined. What strength do I have that I should hope? There's no hope for me. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He's terrified by God. He loathes his own life. He wishes God would just leave him alone. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I will not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. Job asked God what he's done that she treat him like that. What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? Job says God afflicts him without cause and fills him with bitterness. For he crushes me with a tempest. He multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath. 
but fills me with bitterness. Comes to have very low thoughts of God, including charging him that he even laughs at the plight of the innocent. Therefore I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. Okay. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. It is not, if it is not he, who else could it be? Thinks that God oppresses him without reason and then smiles on the counsel of the wicked. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Hmm? He's perplexed. Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Again, he says, are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone that I may take a little comfort. Can't you just at least leave me alone for a while? That I don't have to continue to bear this? But I would desire to speak to the Almighty and I desire to reason with God. He wants to reason with God. He when expressing his great trust in God, Job still feels the need to defend himself before him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, even so I will defend my own ways before him. Withdraw your hand from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? You destroy the hope of men. He tears at me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes his teeth. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze upon me. Now he's talking about God. He continues with charges that God has pitilessly made him a target to shake to pieces. God has delivered me to the ungodly and has turned me over to the hands of the wicked. <clears throat> I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He has also taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. My spirit is broken. But he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. Know that God has wronged me and surrounded me with his net. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as one of his enemies. He pleads to his three friends, Have pity on me, have pity on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? Are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to him. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. There the upright could reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Therefore, I'm terrified at his presence. 
when I consider this, I'm afraid of him, for God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me. As God lives, who has taken away my justice, just a couple more. I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up, and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. When I looked for good, evil came to me, and when I waited for light, then came darkness. Let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. For destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. God himself, when he starts responding to Job in chapter 40, verse 2, says that Job has contended with him, corrected him, and rebuked him. So the one who contends with the Almighty, correct him. He who rebukes God, let him answer it. These are the thoughts that can come even to a man of God himself, of whom God himself has twice said, there's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. These are the thoughts that can come even to a man such as that during a period of prolonged pain and suffering. And you need to prepare yourself. You want to work out a theology of suffering while you're suffering. You want to prepare yourself beforehand. Final chapters of Job. A couple of things to put in mind. First, <clears throat> many scholars consider the book of Job to be one of the earliest written books in the Bible. Matthew Henry dates it at the time of the writings of Genesis and says he is a contemporary of Isaac and Jacob. I think Dr. Piper feels, if I'm not mistaken, that he had the whole uh, Pentateuch. But there's discussion. At any rate, Job very likely had no great body of written theology to fall back on. What wisdom he had was that imparted by the Holy Spirit for the most part. And second, keep in mind, one of the great errors of Job's time was the idea of a direct link between the degree of suffering and the degree of their own personal sin, an error that persists to this day. Okay, Job has longed for an audience with God. Wanted to know why God has afflicted him so terribly when he's done nothing to deserve such treatment. We saw how despairing, how depressed he became. He does maintain a basic trust that God is good, but he has made many erroneous, wrong, and rash statements about him and he thinks, if only I can get an audience with God and present my case to him, then God will come to see his error and his injustice towards me and lift his heavy hand from him. Now, beginning of chapter 38, Job at long last gets his request, his audience with God. This is, to me, one of the most intensely fascinating and remarkable meetings you can possibly read about. Very dramatic. Don't miss the magnificence of what's going on here, okay? 
On one hand, you have Job, a man of whom God himself has twice said, there's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, also a man who is totally wrecked in both body and spirit, deeply depressed, despairing, in utter perplexity and confusion as to why God has become his enemy. On the other hand, you have the sovereign, all-powerful creator and God of the universe, supreme ruler of the universe, who has permitted Job to be so severely afflicted by Satan and whom Job has accused of injustice, wrongdoing, error, cruelty, while by God's own admission, contending with correcting and rebuking him. And now this man, this poor wretched shell of a man, stands before God, who has allowed all this to happen. Job's three friends are observing from the background, astounding gathering. What happened in Job's audience with God? Well, at the very beginning, we see that instead of Job questioning God, as he had for so long desired to do, God immediately begins questioning him. Opening their discourse with a very deeply penetrating question that clearly showed Job the foolishness and rashness of his questioning and rebuking God and charging God with injustice, error, and being an enemy to him. What were God's first words to Job? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? All right? This is the Matthew Henry on this. The preface is very searching. God charges him with ignorance and presumption in what he said. Who is this that talks at this rate? Is it Job? Shall he pretend to prescribe to me what I must do or quarrel with me for what I have done? Is it Job? What? My servant Job, a perfect and upright man, can he so far forget himself and act unlike himself? Who, where is he that darkens counsel thus by words without knowledge? Let him show his face if he dare and stand to what he has said. R.C. Sproul comments, Do you hear the force of that rebuke? God says to him, Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Watch it, Job. You're casting a shadow over my perfect counsel, over the perfect counsel of my wisdom. You're not speaking from the perspective of omniscience, but from the perspective of consummate ignorance. You don't know what you're talking about. And now you put me on trial. You want me to give an answer to your theological inquiries. You want to interrogate me. I want to answer your questions. But before I answer them, I want you to answer some for me. Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Here's question number one, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Sproul later comments, this is not an exercise in divine bullying of Job, but a crash course on the nature and character of God. Job, look at who I am. Job, 
You can trust me. All right? God's first question again. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, every one of us, and I especially include myself in this, who have ever questioned God's wisdom, justice, and love and put him on trial can feel the full force of this rebuke because it's rejected, it's directed at us just as much as it's directed at Job. God continues, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Matthew Henry again. He challenges him to give such proofs of his knowledge as would serve to justify inquiries into the divine counsel. It was as if he had said, Gird up now thy loins like a stout man, prepare thyself for the encounter. I will demand of thee, and will put some questions to thee, and answer me if thou canst before I answer thine. Interestingly, God didn't just intrude and do this. This is what Job had specifically asked for back in chapter 13, verse 22, when he says to God, Then call, and I will answer. In other words, he tells God, Come, ask me questions, I'll answer. God continues with a lengthy round of questions in which he displays his sovereignty, wisdom, omnipotence, goodness, and greatness before Job, then ask him, and you and me as well, another deeply penetrating question in Job 42, verse 2. So the one who contends with the Almighty, correct him. He who rebukes God, let him answer. Now, Two most interesting aspects to me that come out of this audience with God that we need to very carefully note. First, God never gives Job an explanation of his ordeal of suffering and what went on behind it. Never gives it to him. Second, and even more remarkable in my opinion, Job no longer wants to ask him. What an incredible change in Job's attitude towards his suffering. In the very presence of God, Job immediately forgets all his complaints, all his questions, all his charges. The farthest thing from his mind at this point would be any contention with, correction of, or rebuking of God. Rather, Job was so totally overwhelmed by the transcendent majesty and presence of God that even though he was probably the godliest man of his time from a biblical perspective, he came to view and say of himself and his situation, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice but I will proceed no further. Two chapters later, he says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay? Read five pages of complaints. Job gets his audience. Job experienced firsthand God's greatness, view of his transcendent majesty, struck, stuck speechless by God's questioning of him, and has consequently admitted that he has uttered that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. And he has consequently repented in dust and ashes. In the face of all his suffering, in God's presence, Job could only consider himself vile and abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. No more questions. No more demands to know why. Only humility and repentance for all the harsh words he had uttered earlier. This reminds me of Isaiah's similar encounter with God. Isaiah was probably the holiest and best man of his time. What happens when he is admitted into the presence of God? He immediately goes into self-deprecating curses. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Both Job and Isaiah show us that our view of God is much, much less than it deserves to be or should be. Now, God is finished with Job. He turns to Job's three friends for speaking wrong of him and misrepresenting him. <clears throat> and so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord then said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Matthew Henry comments, Job's friends were greatly mortified and come off with disgrace. They were good men and they belonged to God, meaning they were saved men. And therefore he would not let them lie still in their mistake any more than Job. But having humbled Job by a discourse out of the whirlwind, he takes another course to humble them, which is a pretty stern rebuke to them. Okay? Now, I've got an assignment for you over the next week. I want you to think about this. We went through five pages of complaints and sayings of Job against God. 
How is it that God can turn to his three friends and four times in two verses call him my servant Job and say, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You can just think about it. You want me to go ahead and tell you? We'll see next week. And this is what is so gracious about God. When Job repented, God forgave him. All of that. And then turned to what Job said only in regard to what the three friends had said. And that's why I could call him still. He's not some... He said horrible, horrible things about God. Repeatedly. But he repented and God forgave him and he didn't hold him there as some little second-class saved person. No. He calls him my servant Job. Already forgotten all his sins, says, you've not spoken to me what is right like my servant Job has. And he even uses Job as an intermediary through which his three friends can be forgiven. You sacrifice all this to me, Job will pray for you and I'll forgive you. You see, that's the wonder of God's grace and mercy. All right, I got about three minutes. Anybody got any questions or comments? It's a wonderful book. Thank you for listening to this message from Antioch Presbyterian Church. For more information about Antioch, visit us at our website at antiochpca.com.